Amen. Wes read the passage we'll be looking at today out of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And uh, this is the last of a non-series. Uh, we have, uh, I've just chosen some uh, messages that really don't fit into a series, but they've become a series of non-series messages. And we're going to wrap it up today before we look into the minor prophet Habakkuk. And uh, so this would be an appropriate conclusion to this time. As we look in Proverbs chapter 3, if you're familiar with this uh, book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is about general truths about life itself, and it's specifically addressed from a father to a son. Solomon, King Solomon, uh, is the author, uh, is the writer, as God is the author, and uh, great wisdom in this. And years ago, I was challenged to read uh, a proverb a day, and basically that'll take you through the book of Proverbs in a month. And even a greater challenge is to do that every month for a year, and you'll read 12 times through the book of Proverbs, and it is a rich, rewarding experience if you choose to do that. And, uh, but if you're familiar with Proverbs, you know that basically the big, big proposition of Proverbs is, is how to drive foolishness out of young people. <laughs> and that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek central proposition, but it's about wisdom, and it's about gaining wisdom, and about the idea that uh, just because we're smart people doesn't mean that we're wise people. And so this father is uh, ask, telling his son and giving him direction so that he doesn't make foolish mistakes because the counterpoint to wisdom is foolishness and we don't want to be fools or be known as fools. And uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, I, just, I love Tozer's writings, uh, but he wrote a little devotional and uh, he entitled it why they act like idiots, why they act like idiots, and the title itself caught my attention, but I want to read this for you because it's really an introduction uh, to the whole purpose of uh, this book of Proverbs as well as to this particular message out of Proverbs chapter 3. A.W. Tozer writes, without worship we go about miserably, that's why we all have the troubles we have. You wonder why young people act like such idiots. Some young, some, young, some young people have a lot of energy and don't know what to do with it, so they go out and act like idiots. And that's why gangsters and communists and sinners of all kinds do what they do, including what occurred in Orlando early this morning. They are endowed by God Almighty with brilliant intelligence and an amazing store of energy, and because they don't know what to do with it, they do the wrong thing. That's why I'm not angry with people when I see them go off the deep end, because I know that they have fallen from their first estate along with Adam's brood and all of us together. They haven't been redeemed, and so they have energy they don't know what to do with. They have capacity they don't know how to use. They have skills, and they don't know where to put them. So they go wild, and police have to arrest people and put them in jail. If they had been taught that they had come into the world in the first place to worship God and enjoy him forever, and that when they fell, Jesus Christ came to redeem them, to make worshipers out of them, they could by the Holy Ghost and the washing of the blood be made into worshiping saints, and things would be so different. Unquote. As I have contemplated this passage over the last several weeks, I knew I was coming here and I was thinking about it. And also as I uh, 
am exposed to much uh, preaching through the print and through uh, the media uh, in the current situation in churches today. Uh, I kind of echo the thoughts of other writers uh, that I've often wished, and I think we all wish this, that there was an easy shortcut to bring us into the deeper spiritual life painlessly and with short, easy lessons. <laughs> That's why the kind of preaching that we see much of today, like entitled like uh, Three Easy Steps to a Wonderful Marriage or How to Raise a Children in Five Steps, those kinds of things, uh, they have the allure and the promise of great results without much pain, and yet they usually come up empty without much to offer us. And so this deeper spiritual life, there's no such thing as easy lessons and easy paths. And those kind of wishes are vain, even though I wish them for myself. They don't seem to work out that way. There's no shortcuts to becoming a growing spiritual person. I like uh, Eugene Peterson's title of one of his books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's what I found in the, the years as the decades pile up for me in the Christian life that it's simply a long obedience in the same direction. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy paths. There is not this uh, acceleration to a zenith of beauty uh, because we all live in a fallen world. And so today we come to Proverbs and this uh, book of Proverbs just to set the context for this short passage in chapter 3 is Proverbs 1 shows us the importance, chapter 1 shows us the importance of seeking wisdom as the father addresses the son. Chapter 2 instructs us how to pursue wisdom and he enumerates for his son some of the benefits of seeking wisdom. We all want to be wise people. None of us want to be called fools, and yet uh, there's lots of foolishness that goes on in the world today. And even in churches, there's lots of foolishness. And so here in chapter 3, it opens up the treasure, treasure house of wisdom. Dr. Bruce Waltke, who is an Old Testament scholar, a Hebrew scholar, uh, uh, just a magnificent uh, man, blessed of God, mightily in his mind, he writes of this chapter, he says, this chapter will give you a finer education than you could receive from most colleges and universities, plus it won't cost you as much. <laughs> and uh, so this introduces us, but uh, when we think of the heart, if you were listening as uh, Wes read that or following along, notice that in verse 3 it says, write them on the tablet of your hearts. Now our heart is an amazing organ in our bodies. It is <clears throat> an incredible little pump. Uh, I, I read somewhere that the average lifespan, it will, it will beat some 3,600,000 times or something when you figure it out at 90 beats a minute, I think. And uh, so I did the math of how many I've already used up and how many I have left if I live an average lifespan. Don't do that. <laughs> it's kind of sobering, by the way. But uh, what an amazing pump. But interestingly, in Scripture, the word is used, the English word that's translated of the he from the Hebrew and the Greek into heart is used some 866 times, at least in the New American Standard Bible. There's two major words, a Hebrew word, leb, L-E-B, is the transliteration. And then, of course, the Greek word is uh, uh, cardia or cardia, which we get our word uh, uh, cardio or cardiac from. 
when we talk in medical terms about the physical heart. But uh, the most of the occurrences in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, the heart is used uh, figuratively or metaphorically. That word is used not of the organ beating in our chest, but of our inner man, our inmost being. And this is what it's referring to here. And uh, God refers to mankind and his heart. And for the Hebrew, it was the Hebrew person or Jewish person and the Old Testament writings, the heart was an incredible uh, description of uh, not our physical being, but uh, our immaterial being, our intellect, our emotion, our will was all wrapped up in the heart. And so the heart is a very important thing. And what's interesting is God's estimation of our innermost being. As he looks at mankind, and if you do a study of heart throughout Scripture, you will see that God talks about and talks about people who have a divided heart. In other words, they're living duplicitously. You know, they're, they're, they're looking one way, but then living another way. And all of us have a tendency to do that, to put on the Sunday morning face and then uh, live like uh, somebody else the rest of the week. And God is talking to us as a people, but he condemns the divided heart, the double heart. In Psalm 12, 2, talks about having a double heart, this duplicitous that marks that type of person's life. But then he talks about having a whole heart, a whole heart. And actually, the word, the Hebrew word that's used for a whole heart is the word that is transliterated over as the word Salem for whole, which means perfect, intact complete, undivided whole. And so you think of some towns named Salem, you know, Salem, Oregon, Salem, New Hampshire. Uh, that word has come over, and, it, and there's churches named Salem Bible Church, and it's all of that. And so that is an interesting word in itself, how it's come over into our language, meaning whole, perfect, intact. And God talks about uh, some of his children who have a whole heart or a perfect heart or an undivided heart, a complete heart. In Second Kings chapter 20, King Hezekiah is one of those men, one of those people. In the midst of his distress, he cried out and reminded God that he had served him with a whole heart, a Salem heart. And so Hezekiah is one. Another one in First Chronicles chapter 12 are the Israeli warriors who rallied around King David about God's man, and we are told that they had undivided hearts in First Chronicles 12. They had perfect hearts. And of course, he's not talking about their cardiology. He's talking about their inner being, about the way they live their life, about the way they are viewed by God. And then we see that David in First Chronicles 28 challenges his son Solomon and prayed that he would have a perfect heart. He challenges him to have a whole heart. Sadly, later on, we see as Solomon ages, uh, he is led astray by his many, many wives to worship other gods, and he did not have a whole heart in old age as his father David did. It's a sad commentary on one of the men who is claimed to be one of the wisest men who ever lived. His wisdom failed him, and he became foolish, and we don't want to be like that. It's a rich biblical term, this word heart. In biblical literature, it's always seen for our immaterial personality, about our functions, the way we function. It's an inclusive term. 
And <clears throat> virtually every immaterial function of man is attributed to the heart in biblical literature. And we even use it figuratively in our lives today. We say, oh, I have a heartache, or my heart is joyous today, and we're using it in the same way. What we're referring to is not our physical being, but our immaterial being, our emotion, our intellect, and our will. And so this inner or immaterial part, and that's what uh, Solomon is using this word for in chapter 3. And we're going to see two major sections in verses 1 through 12, uh, who teaches us how to know that we have an undivided heart. How do we know that? How do we know if our heart, you know, elsewhere in Scripture it says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Uh, So how is it that we want to have wisdom in a whole heart? Do we really want God to look at us and say, oh, he's got a divided heart, he's foolish, or do we want him to say, she's got a whole heart, she's got a perfect heart, it's undivided Well, this passage in Proverbs chapter 3 teaches us about the heart. In verses 1 through 4, an undivided heart for God really pursues sound instruction. If you take notes, you might just write down lifelong learner. (laughs) You know, just because you graduate from college or graduate school or high school doesn't mean you're done. In fact, If you go to graduate school, they don't call it graduation because that implies that you're done. They call it commencement. That means you're launched out into life, into the next step. And all of us need to be lifelong learners. And that's what he tells us and what the father tells the son here. He says, my son. And in this passage, uh, we see that there are commandments and they're followed by blessings. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy 28, which sets the whole tone for all of Scripture, all of prophetic Scripture, uh, God tells the Israelite people, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And that is the highway thread throughout Scripture. And so here he says, these are these commands. This father is telling his son, don't be foolish, be wise. And here's what happens if you are wise. And so this whole heart will be a picture here of what it looks like. So this undivided heart for God pursues sound instruction. And I'm assuming that that is the motive why you are here this morning and not out on the lake or at the golf course, you know, because you want to be instructed. You want to be with God's people. That is a wise thing to do. That points to having a whole heart. And so the command is, notice, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments. Okay, two words are used there, teaching and commandment. In my translation, the Hebrew word, the first one under teaching is the word Torah. You may be familiar with that Hebrew word Torah. You've heard of the Torah. It's the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And it is the expression of God's will through the law for the people of Israel. And the Torah, and he tells them, do not forget it. That's the negative command. The positive command is to keep or to heed what is being taught in this law, in this commandment. We often think in uh, the 21st century, especially in our country and uh, in our current state of societal woes, that we think of law as being restrictive and punitive, don't we? 
Uh, in fact, uh, people bowed their necks figuratively against rules and regulations, and yet it's not. God's law is not restrictive and punitive, and it's more like guardrails. I like that illustration. Uh, we were on some mountain passes, Rogers Pass over uh, by Lincoln, Montana, and it's kind of twisty and it's steep, and there are guardrails. And I was thankful because if somehow I lost control of my vehicle or you know, the guardrail would catch me. Or if I thought I could drive off, the guardrail would catch me. And so God's rules are not restrictive and punitive, but they are from a loving hand, and they are guardrails for our well-being. And so <clears throat> the law means a device which gives us direction, a path to follow. It's nice to know where you're going. And God gives us a path. And so what are the blessings here? Look at the blessings in verse 2, where he tells us, Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart, speaking of this immaterial part, keep my commandments. Verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Length of days, years of life, and peace. These are general ways of life. Now, obviously, there are people who die at a young age. They don't have length of years. And they've been very faithful to the Lord, and we know that. And so these are generalities. These are not promises that will come through in every instance. But yet the general truth is, is that they will add peace to your life. Peace throughout includes prosperity. It's a broader meaning, wholeness, health, harmony, not necessarily financial prosperity. But you will have great rest in life. So in verses 1 through 2, we need to... The, the, the whole undivided heart pursues remembering and keeping, remembering and keeping God's word. In verses 3 through 4, pursues godly character. Look at verse 3. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. There's the command. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. What is the source of kindness and truth? It is God's word, God's will. That is the source of all kindness, of all truth. And then bind them. It talks positively, this, this picture of binding them uh, around your neck like a necklace. Many of you wear necklaces, and you, you hook it, you have a, a clasp, and you put it on, and it's bound around your neck. And if it's a good clasp, it'll stay there, right? You won't have to be looking for it. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word I have hidden thy, my heart that I might not sin, against thee. And what are the blessings? Look at the blessings as we bind these around our neck, write them on the tablet of our heart. Verse 4, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Favor with God and man, gracious to show favor. We have biblical evidence of that where God found favor in David. Even though David sinned dramatically, he was found favor because he had this undivided heart, this whole heart and the benefits were his, and we will experience that also. So verses 1 through 4, an undivided heart pursues sound instruction. A lifelong learner, one who is encouraged in the word of God and spends time there. In verses 5 through 12, we have four qualities, four marks of an undivided heart. And these are commands, they're, <coughs> they're not only uh, descriptive, they're prescriptive. In other words, these are commands followed by blessing. The first one is found in verses 5 and 6. A wholehearted person trusts in the Lord. Look at verse 5. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. This idea of trust. My best understanding of trust is when I get on an airplane. You know, John James just got back from Israel. How many hours was that, John? Fifteen hours. He and Marge just got back from a dig over in Israel. John, did you leave one foot on the ground in Tel Aviv? Not at all. No. He trusts that machine. Did you see the pilots, by the way? They might have been chimpanzees pulling levers and getting bananas, for all you know. Okay? Talk about trust. <laughs> and and so that for me, it's an illustration. You know, I don't leave one foot on the ground. I pretty much look to make sure it has two wings and some engines. And... Uh, but we get on that airplane and we go. So it says, trust God entirely with all your heart. God demands an undivided commitment to him. We can be tempted to trust the wisdom of the world, can't we? We're inundated every day, whether it's in our education, whether it's in the media we are exposed to, but we're tempted to trust the wisdom of the world rather than relying upon divine revelation. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 113, I hate those who are double-minded. Jesus said no one can serve two masters in Matthew 6. And he taught that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength in Mark 12. Trusting God entirely, no reservations, no holding back. I love Denise's testimony. Because that's the struggle she was going through. Do I really trust him entirely? And I think anybody who's honest will say that. Both Don and I have been there. Where do I really, does God really know what he's doing? Can I trust him? Secondly, we trust God exclusively. Do not lean on your own understanding, the second part of verse 5. The wise person does not lean on his own understanding, but trusts God, that God's way is best. The one who chooses his own way arrogantly claims that he knows better than God. I'm always brought face to face with that. Do I really know better than God in this situation? I don't think so. Thirdly, not only do we trust God entirely, exclusively, but trust God extensively. In all your ways, acknowledge him. We are not merely to acknowledge God's lordship over all of our life, we are to bring God's truth to bear, bear, bear truth upon every aspect of life. We need to trust him in how we run our families, our education, our careers, our finances, our friendships. He is the Lord of all. Abraham Kuyper said, In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, That is mine. You know, we were very good at compartmentalizing things. I was really uh, uh, humbled when we went to Indonesia and met with those tribal Christians who had very little training, but they had a worldview which taught them that all of life was spiritual, and every portion of their life, everything belonged to God. We Westerners, we compartmentalized. Well, this is my education box. This is my church box. This is my God box. This is my recreation box. This is my business box. And if we're not careful, we can make sure that God doesn't have any fingerprints on any other part of our lives. God says, that is mine. So what are the blessings? Look at verse 6 here. Verse 6 says, 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. First of all, there's two benefits. Guidance. He will bring us to the appointed goal. It's not our appointed goal, his appointed goal. And that's where trust comes in, doesn't it? He removes the obstacles. Those who follow Christ and seek wisdom have a less problematic life. And I think I can say that with some accuracy and authority from Scripture. doesn't mean our lives will be easier, but it will be less problematic. Some of the things that you could be involved in, especially if you were saved in a, as an adult, you can really see a contrast between what you were and what you are now. But even if you were saved when you were five years old, the potential for what you could have been was out there because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So a wholehearted person trusts God. Secondly, in verses 7 and 8, the wholehearted person fears the Lord. Look at verse 7. That's the second command. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is the command. The negative part of it is do not be wise in your own eyes. Well, then what do we do? Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. A heart awareness and proper response. And uh, we get hung up sometimes on what this means to fear the Lord. We could spend a whole series on what it means to fear the Lord. And one thing we need to recognize is God's character, who he is. As I've thought about this and studied scripture, we know that scripture teaches us that God is imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. In other words, he is close. He is near. It's that concept of he is everywhere present. He is near and he's with us. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Denise referred to that verse earlier. She knows that, okay? He's with us. But then there's another theological thing called transcendence. It means he is completely other. He is completely distinct. He is, some, he is, a, he is a being that is so big and so different from what the creation is and from what who we are it should strike us with awe. So I thought about this, about this whole issue of fear. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Some people think of servile fear, which is self-centered. It's the fear of getting in trouble. You know, if I do this, God's going to punish me. And it's the fear of getting in trouble. I don't think that's biblical fear. I think it's what's called filial fear, which means It's a loving fear. It's others-centered. It means the fear of offending someone whom we love. And the amount of that you feel depends upon the direct relationship of how much you love God. You know, Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4, back a few pages in your Bibles. Let me read that for you. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. As we grow in our Christian faith, as we are wholehearted, we fear the Lord in a sense that we love him so much that we dare not and do not want to offend him. That is the idea. And therefore, we cannot have a whole heart, a complete heart, an undivided heart, a perfect heart, unless we have a clean heart. And how do we have clean hearts? It's interesting. As we traveled, I have a 
shaving kit in a nice little leather bag that my wife bought for me, and I have soap in there, and I have a toothbrush and a hairbrush, and, and uh, I use those things, and it takes care of the external physical part. But what about this immaterial, this heart? How does it clean my heart? First Samuel 16, 7 says, A man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's a staggering verse when you think about it. There's nothing hidden from him. Only God can do that. Think of King David who led the nation. He commanded the greatest army on the world at that time. And he could not clean his own heart when he sinned. And he prayed to God that God would create in him a clean heart in Psalm 51. For us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that wonderful, wonderful promise out of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are not perfect beings, but we are perfect in Christ. And he gives us the ability and the opportunity to confess our sins, agree with him, turn from them, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the command when we fear the Lord. What is the blessing? Look at verse 8. The blessing is, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Literally, in, in the King James, it says, health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. In other words, it's going to be okay. You're going to be good. You're going to have health. You're going to have vigor. Uh, spiritual and physical health are related. It doesn't mean that you're not going to face any physical sickness, but in the general terminology, you will be blessed in this. Verses 9 and 10, we see the third mark. A wholehearted person honors the Lord. In verse 9, we have the command, honor the Lord. And how do we do that? It says, from your wealth and from the first of your produce. From your wealth, from the first of your produce. The first fruits of the crops was a way of expressing for the ancient Hebrew his provision in their life, and acknowledging God and his help in things. And then the blessing is general prosperity. This doesn't mean that if we honor him in giving that he's going to uh, give us health, wealth, and prosperity. The prosperity gospel is a lie, by the way. But yet there is a general principle that godliness results in gain. It may not be financial gain, but it will be gain, and you will be a blessing to others. It does, does not disallow God from making exceptions, but God is honored. Derek Kidner observes that God is invested in rather than, or excuse me, Psalms 310 is balanced by verses 11 and 12 in this verse. And that brings us to the, number, the fourth mark, and that is a wholehearted person treasures the Lord and values his discipline. Look at verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. That's the command. The negative portion of that, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, do not loathe him. But the idea is, is that he is to be treasured and that we were to treasure his discipline. Not punishment, but discipline. And what, do you, how, what is the blessing there? For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects his son in whom he delights. That is the blessing. It's like a box full of treasures when you look at your life and how God has been faithful, even in the midst of discipline you, to keep you from going over the edge, going down the wrong path. A person with an undivided heart for God pursues sound teaching, exhibits these four qualities. They trust the Lord, fear the Lord, honor the Lord, and essentially treasure 
the Lord Jesus. Remember the teaching in Matthew chapter 22? Jesus was talking to, the, to a lawyer, and this lawyer asked him a question, testing him, it says, in chapter 22 of Matthew. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In concluding this, the question remains, where he could, this, Solomon uh, writes in verse 3, where he says, uh, do not let kindness and truth leave you, which is uh, outflow of the teaching and commandments or the will of God. It says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. How do we do that? How do we do that? I think there are three ways that this is done. And uh, there may be more, but these are three that I've thought of. Because when we think of uh, the law, we think of our civil law, and <clears throat> we are moved to obedience because there are external agencies uh, which will use force to coerce us into obedience, okay? It's not a punitive agency. The punishment remains with the courts, with the civil courts, or the legal courts, but how is a Christian moved to obedience? Because this is really about obedience. Uh, the father is telling the son, if you want to be wise, do these things. Uh, how do we uh, move to this position? Reinforcement comes to us in three ways. And the first one is, is first it comes by the scriptures. Repeated study of God's word. By exposure to the message, that's how it's reinforced to us. When the psalmist declares that he meditates on the law day and night, he was describing a process in which he was frequently and repeatedly exposed to the word of God. His meditation was neither superficial or occasional. He immersed himself in the law of God and came to love it. The affections of the law became the affections of his own heart. And that's why I challenge you to read Habakkuk every day this next week. It'll get you ready. And uh, you will be better prepared to learn from that little book. The second means of reinforcement in our lives, how to bind and write these things on the tablet of our hearts, is the divine illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a theological, technical term, but Scripture teaches us that without the Holy Spirit teaching us and illuminating what we read, we don't get it. There are tons of scholars around the world who are very well educated, who are educated in the biblical text. They know Hebrew and Greek backwards and forwards, and yet they are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because this book simply remains another piece of literature to them because their eyes have not been opened. They have not been illumined by the Holy Spirit to understand the truth of what God's Word is teaching us, and it goes back to their unbelief. And so this command to write the law upon our hearts does not simply refer to the new location, whether the law was written on tablets or stone or printed on frontlets hanging from our foreheads. It's still external to us. It's outside. Uh, but when it's written on our hearts, it's internal. The purpose of writing the law on our hearts is not only to enhance its visibility, but its viability. We conclude then that we have the law written on our hearts refers to God's changing the disposition of our hearts toward love of obedience. And only God can do that because we are rebels by nature. 
And God loves us so much that he is faithful to do it. So he is binding that about us and writing it on our hearts. The third means of reinforcement, not only being exposed to Scripture, illumination of the Holy Spirit, but the third means of reinforcement at our disposal is the grace concentrated in what we call the church. I know this isn't a very popular position today, but I believe it is a biblical position. That though the, you know, even though uh, churches can mess up, distort the law of God, and become an agent of legalism, so our neglect of the law is to can, and or so neglect the law is to give us license to sin. Its divine vocation is to nurture our souls and assist in the progress towards sanctification. Remember, between our salvation, our justification, and our glorification is this part called sanctification. We are being saved from the very power of sin. And so as we gather here today, our purpose is because we gather as a holy people. Remember, Christians are called saints, those set apart unto God's holiness. We're not holy in and of ourselves. It's only what God imputes through Jesus Christ into our lives. And so this vocation is holy, the means of grace which comes through the church and reinforces our desire to obey as we learn together, grow together, and to become unified together. Uh, One writer has said, it is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to unite with the church to be a Christian. They claim that their devotion is personal and private, not institutional or corporate. He goes on to conclude, this is not the testimony of the great saints of history. It is the confession of fools. And that's the day and age we live in. We don't want to be fools. And so needful things are undivided hearts that seek sound instruction, that trust God, that fear God, that honor him and treasure and value even his discipline. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that 